spirits and more radio. If I touch my shoulder, it would touch my hair. Starts now. And I said, what the hell is that? Spirits and more radio starts now. Welcome, foolish mortals, to the haunted mansion. I am your host, your ghost host. <laughs> Kindly step all the way in, please, and make room for everyone. There's no turning back now. Turn down the lights, if you dare. Spirits and more radio. And I'm your host, Steve Rowan, and uh, welcome to this very special edition of Spirits and More Radio. I uh, haven't broadcasted in quite some time, so I was completely inspired by the Disneyland Haunted Mansion 50th anniversary. I know a couple of people going to the special event there uh, happening tonight and tomorrow night, and then the actual, uh, when, when you guys hear this, it'll be the day. Uh, the actual day, August 9th, when Haunted Mansion opened. Uh, I've got a guest with me. Uh, we used to work together, so uh, we've known each other for quite some time. And uh, he worked with Walt Disney Company and in, in the audio uh, division and uh, actually had the opportunity to work on the Phantom Manor in Paris. So uh, he's going to be on the show and bring some insight into uh, the, the Haunted Mansion and the sort of behind the scenes that maybe we don't know about uh, as uh, we talk about the Haunted Mansion and all the cool stuff that's happened there. So anyway, I want to welcome to the show Greg Meter. Greg, are you there? I'm here. Hello. Perfect. All right. Cool. So, uh, with a little <laughs> throwing this studio together, I'm I'm I want to tell you guys where I am right now. I'm in my new house, which is a hundred year old house in Old Town, San Diego, and I'm in the basement uh, of this house. And if anyone is listening from California, you know that not many houses have basements. This is like a this is a hatch in the floor, so it's sort of hidden. You lift this thing off, and there's a room under the house. So uh, it's the perfect place to do this show. And so I was scrambling to plug in wires and make this happen uh, because one thing that I've been busy with and one of the reasons I haven't done more shows recently is – uh, starting at the beginning of the year in 2019, I started to do a haunted pub crawl down in uh, the gas lamp in downtown San Diego and now here in Old Town. So uh, if you go to spooksandspirits.com, you'll see all the information about that. And uh, it's been a great time. It's been really fun showing people San Diego and haunted bars and telling my story and, and hearing other people's stories. So it's been a great time. Uh, speaking of that, Greg, have you ever had a paranormal experience of any sort? Not that I, not that stands out. No. Um, I can tell you, I did have one time where I was walking through a cemetery in Montreal, Canada with a friend late at night and I did get a very weird feeling, but I can't attribute it to seeing anything. It was just one of those things where we should probably get out of here. I see. So you started to get this heavy feeling <laughs> is what you're saying. Well, yeah, I think it was uh, me and my friend were having a conversation just about like ghosts and stuff. And would we see something? And then sort of the more we talked about it, <laughs> the more we started thinking, 
huh, we just could, we could sense something. And, right. and he was kind of a, you know, he'd been studying out of body experiences and things. So I think he was, you know, maybe he was channeling something. I'm not sure. I just know that it got very weird. So we got out of there and once we got out of there, everything seemed normal again. So I can't say I've seen a ghost, but it felt weird. I'll yeah, say that. Yeah. That's the thing that, uh, a lot of people don't, uh, well, there, there is an energy. It's weird. It's, it's, you know, and is it scientifically explainable? I don't know, but I do know for a fact that when I was looking to rent a new house, uh, I went to a house that had been on the market and it was really cheap in a great area. It was built, it was fairly modern house. And as soon as I walked in that house, I just had this really heavy, eerie feeling that I didn't like. And as I went to other houses, uh, I didn't have that feeling. So that one house had something, some weird energy and presence. It was felt really negative and heavy. And I know that's probably true because that thing was on the market for six months underpriced when everyone's like gobbling up any rental they can get. So I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but, um, yeah, yeah. you know, one house yeah. that does not really have a heavy feeling is the haunted mansion. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it's been a great success at Disneyland and it's a, it's a favorite of mine and a favorite of a lot of other people's, um, is there, what was, what was your first experience with the haunted mansion, um, at Disneyland as not as when you worked at the company, but just going there? Uh, well, I think I was probably, um, you know, eight or nine years old, I guess, cause the building was there for years and years before the attraction ever opened. So I know that I was there with my family and I would see the house and just, you know, it looked like the old kind of that Southern plantation look, just the exact kind of house that would be haunted. Um, but I don't know. I just remember seeing it and thinking, I can't wait for something to be there. And, and finally when it opened, it was just, uh, I don't know, it was just a neat, a neat experience, but I don't really I don't remember anything, you know, nothing crazy happened. I didn't walk by it and get any weird feelings or anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just, I just, I remember seeing it there and just, that was my first experience was just seeing the building and thinking, what are they going to do with this? And then, you know, when they finally opened it, it was like, wow, this is a uh, pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I was just at Midsummer Scream in Long Beach, which is a horror and Halloween convention. And uh, uh, Imagineer from Disney was there and, and did a presentation on the Haunted Mansion. And one of the cool things that he focused on was these rumors that have persisted over the years that, you know, it opened and then it was too scary and it closed or it was going to be a walkthrough or different things. And he sort of went back into the archives at Disney, you know, having that ability to go dig around, I guess, in the files. And he, uh, he pretty much cleared up that it never opened uh, and closed. That didn't happen. Uh, but the basis of that was that that was originally supposed to be a walkthrough attraction. And the design he pulled up, it was really cool. He found some drawings. Uh, and the design was going to be... If anyone is familiar or all the people listening who love the Haunted Mansion know, uh, the first thing you do when you walk into the house is go into a foyer and then you go into another room, which is known as the stretching room. And in California, uh, the stretching room is an elevator and it, it has a function and that function is to get you below the railroad tracks to go through a tunnel into the show building. Uh, in Florida, that's not the case and Phantom Manor probably isn't the case as well. But, um, but anyway, so, so what was supposed to happen is elevator A and elevator B were going to go into 
their own mazes, which were identical. So if capacity, if it was a busy day, both would run. And if it was not a busy day, only A would run. Uh, and you would essentially go through a walkthrough maze that ended with three possible exits into a graveyard, one on the um, west side of the house and one on the east side, depending which elevator, uh, A or B, that you ended up in. So uh, they eventually covered the holes um, that uh, the extra, the, it was three holes and they only need one exit now uh, as it sits as with the Omni viewer system. So anyway, uh, it was kind of fun. It was cool information to learn, you know, what they were going to do. And there's some archive photos of, you know, those penetrations through the, through the walls for the three different exits on each side and, and that sort of thing. So it was really cool to, to see that and hear that. Um, so now you worked at Disney, uh, maybe you can share with us where you worked in Disney and for people who don't understand how Disney is split up and how they do what they do. Maybe you just give us some background on that. Yeah, I worked for the Disney company for a total of about 15 years. Um, you know, Disney's a bunch of separate companies. There's <laughs> Sorry about That's that. Right, I'll wait. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, there's the corporate headquarters up in Burbank. There's the studios, which do all the film production. Um, there are the theme parks, Disneyland, Walt Disney World. You know, every theme park is kind of considered its own company. Um, and it operates as its own company. And then there's the de design group, which is Walt Disney Imagineering, which was originally Wed Enterprises. And uh, Walt formed that back in the early 50s when he was coming up with his ideas for Disneyland. And from my experience, from what I learned at the company was that in the early days, Walt wanted to, he had an idea for Disneyland, but the board of directors of the studio really couldn't see what his vision was. And they just thought it was a carnival. And they said, you know, we're an animation studio, not a carnival company. So, um, they, he, he formed Wood Enterprises and got his lot, bought his, or leased his building over in Glendale away from the studio. So he could just go over there and work un unhindered or on, un, you know, unhinged from the main company. Um, so, so that was, you know, so there was Walt Disney Imagineering and then the theme parks. So I started out at the theme parks. I was a musician, started working there as a, um, a drummer in the Christmas parade and did that for a few years. And then after I got out of school, I got offered a full-time job and I moved down to Florida, played in, dr played drums down there <laughs> in Epcot through the mid eighties, which was a lot of fun. Um, but as I was down there working and playing drums, I, I knew there's a lot of shows down there and I kept asking people, you know, who, who creates these shows, who does this stuff? So uh, through, through just getting different answers from different people, I was able to figure out that it came from Walt Disney Imagineering. So at some point I made it my goal to get in there. And when I moved back to California, went back to, did some, took a recording technical vocational school for a year and got, you know, I knew where the company was over in Glendale and I just kept applying there and got turned down once. And the second time I got hired. Cool. And so in, yeah. Into so which department? For, which department? I got in technically department 432 audio video production. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was the audio department. So I was in audio production. Um, it's funny because my first title was audio production specialist because it kind of sounds like a, a military title, but it was just the, um, that's what they called us. And yeah, basically we were the responsible audio person on an attraction because when an attraction is designed and built, there's a lot of different disciplines that are involved and somebody has to be responsible for the audio. And if you're assigned to a project and it's your project, then you are the responsible person. So every audio question that comes up is answered by you and it's, it's a fun position, but yet there's responsibility because if it doesn't sound good, 
it comes back to you as well. Right, right, of so, course. I mean, yeah. There's other disciplines. There's, 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 there was audio, there's engineering, there's hardware. The guys that designed the amplifiers and the speaker layouts, um, there was acoustics. There were other things like that. But my position was software. And by that, I mean whatever came out of the speakers. Okay. So okay. Not, like, not like computer software, but I mean, I guess today technically it is software because it's all digital. But at that time it was analog and it was just whatever, whatever was going to come out of those speakers had to go through me at some point. Wow. Wow. So, so the connection over the years, you worked on different projects and then eventually a project came along uh, in Paris. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we were, um, you know, you work, you just, you work in a department and as, as projects come up, we'd have a weekly meeting and just figure out who was doing what, who was available. And there was a list of projects. And it was funny because there was a, a list of things going into, into Disneyland Paris. And one of them was called Phantom Manor. And at that time, everybody just, the, the word was that it was just going to be a lift from Haunted Mansion. So there wasn't a lot of work to do on it. It was just a copy of Haunted Mansion, put some French in and we're done. And it turned out to be so much more than that, but nobody knew. So when it came, when it was, we were going down the list, I said, I'll take it. And everybody said, yeah, fine. Cause it really wasn't <laughs> that exciting of a project in the beginning for, for anybody. So after I, um, after I got the project, I found out that it was a lot more, it was all new music. It was, it was still kind of the same overall theme, but there was a new storyline, there was new characters and it became its own show, which was very cool. And it was one of my, you know, over my, of all of the stuff I worked on with Disney, it was one of my favorite things to work on. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I remember you talking about uh, some of the other ones, I think Tower of Terror, you recorded some sounds in your kitchen for that one. Yeah, yeah, I was the uh, I was the sound effects designer for Tower of Terror in Florida. Um, so yeah, a lot of the uh, if you're in the if you ever go to Tower of Terror in Florida and you're standing in the boiler room, the queue line areas, <laughs> most of those sounds came out of my kitchen. <laughs> and I mean, I recorded sounds in my kitchen, and I also at the time my dad was a maintenance engineer over at the Disneyland Hotel, so he was able to get me into places over at the hotel. So I took my at that time portable DAT player microphone and went into just all sorts of places at the hotel and recorded things. Wow. It's funny. So, Cause you would, you would, you would think that Disney might have like a big library to go pull from, but it sounds like you had to go search out new sounds. Well, it wasn't that we had to, it's that we wanted to, yeah. um, we did, we did have pretty much every sound effects library you could buy, but you know, the history of Disney with Jimmy McDonald, who was, you know, Jimmy was the first sound effects guy for the company back in like, I think the thirties. Or maybe even like 1928. He did all the original sound effects on the Mickey Mouse cartoons. And back then, you didn't have libraries. You had to build everything. So, so Jimmy would just build stuff and use it as a sound effect. And one of the coolest things at WDI was that all that stuff he built was still around. Okay. Um, you know, so it was the, the the main the lead sound effects guy Joe Harrington had picked up most of it from the studio and had kind of archived it and saved it. So there was kind of a history of, you know, you can use the library, but why would you when you can go out and record stuff? Because it's more fun to go out and record things. Yeah, yeah. So circling around to the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland, um, what is the, those original sounds and the music that we hear, uh, those were created uh, obviously back in late 50s for that attraction. Um, what was, uh, is that, that's all archived and just sitting there? I mean, that's the, is it's the same audio that the attraction opened with that we hear today or has it changed over time? Um, you know, I can only speak to when I was there through the mid nineties. Um, I, but I don't think it's changed much. It was all, a lot of it was recorded in the uh, early sixties. 
Um, I, you know, I, I can tell you that the um, the organ, you know, the, the you know the classic organ sound that you hear that plays everywhere. Yes, that was uh, that was recorded on a um, that's a Wurlitzer organ, but it was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale. Okay, and I, I, there's actually pictures of it if you look for it online. But that actual organ, and I, somebody, some I forget who it was, some famous singer bought it and has it in storage now. So the organ for the haunted mansion still exists, which I think would be a very cool thing to get if I could just find out where it is. <laughs> yeah, and it would be, you know. But so um, a lot of that stuff was mo- what, the way that worked back in the '60s was that all the sound work was done over at the studio. So, because they had all the sound stages and things <clears throat> at that time, Imagineering was or Wet Enterprises was just a kind of like an architectural firm. There were a lot of, you know, dr- drafting tables and drawings and artists, but there wasn't really any production facilities. So the Haunted Mansion sounds were all done over at the studio. So in the, when, in the same facility that the movies were being done, essentially the same right. soundboards and and all that stuff. Correct. Yeah. And when you listen to the, um, and, and it's, and if you listen, there's a, uh, few years ago, well, maybe it's longer than that. Now the, um, there was that CD release that had Haunted Mansion and Phantom Manor and, you know, a bunch of different things. It had some outtakes from the Paul freeze sessions. And when you listen to those outtakes, you hear like bells and like buzzers and things and, and the director slating things and saying stuff. And that's all, you know, it was done. They did it just the way they did when they did movies. So the early, early Haunted Mansion recordings were done like just like a movie soundtrack. I see. So that's what the slates and the sounds were, is the, the, produ- the sound of the production essentially leaking into the recording. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was edited out, but you hear, you know, you can just hear, you'll hear the director say, you know, and I think the director was Exitensio, one of the legendary Imagineers, but he'll just say, you know, try it this way, try it that way. He'll give them some direction and then... <laughs> Yeah. And then they'll you hear like a bell ring, like and I don't even know. It's just it was just what they did to you know when they're going to start recording, they would like turn a recording light on and ring a bell, so everybody knew you were recording to, and to be quiet. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was, was kind of cool. So when you were there, I would imagine that uh, I mean attractions like the haunted mansion are probably uh, difficult to modify internally, just because there's probably some pressure to keep it, you know, as authentic and as original as possible i'd imagine it takes a lot to like recently in recent years you know they've there's been a lot of technology upgrades hatbox ghost has been added uh you know the woman up in the attic uh she showed up about a decade ago and now she's a little bit more uh vicious in her sort of uh demeanor the last time i went on it just a few weeks ago um so obviously there's you know the the thing has changed and morphed over time, but I'd imagine that doesn't happen very easily. Someone really has to sell the idea internally to change the haunted mansion. Yeah. And I can tell you that that never happens from an audio perspective. We, you know, we were, (laughs) I don't want to say we're at the bottom of the food chain, but those kind of decisions are made at the higher levels. So we never had a say in that kind of stuff. We, we were just simply told, here's what we're doing. And do it yeah so so we never had the opportunity to to add you know like we could make suggestions when it came to audio but but generally the idea was to um you know our big task was to just use the original audio and so one of our things we would do was go back because in the you know the, the sound that plays in the park is multiple generations away from the original recordings because you'd recorded originally on 35 millimeter 35 mag you know it's called full stock it's like what how they recorded soundtracks for movies and then that was edited and transferred to another 35 roll. And then finally it was, you know, recorded onto a, 
like what basically an eight track cartridge tape, but it was a two track tape. And so multiple generations down from the original. And yeah. of course, every time you transfer on analog, you're getting a little bit of tape hiss and noise and things. So our goal, you know, in the audio was always just to see how far back we could go to the original. We'd go to the studio and, you know, find the original session tapes if we could. And it was, you know, that was kind of the fun part for us. Yeah. Is that stuff in sort of a vault uh, that you have access to? You do, if, you're, if you're working there and you're working on a project, you go to a certain place and, and all that stuff is probably kept in a, like a you know, climate-controlled space, I'd imagine. Yeah, you'd be surprised at what they don't have. Um, I mean, they do have a vault. It, they have climate control and all that kind of stuff, but a lot of stuff was missing because it was just, you know, at the time, like in the 60s with Disney, Disneyland was still, it was Disneyland, but it wasn't, stuff was, they, they were doing so much stuff with the studio and so many sounds, they just would put stuff on shelves and things would get thrown away. Wow. And it's, it's amazing that, you know, a lot of this original stuff still does exist, but there were many times like, and I didn't do Haunted Mansion as much. I, I did a little work on it on some of the upgrades, but it was mostly hardware upgrades, show control things. But it's amazing how much stuff you can't find. <laughs> like you go back as far as you can and you realize that, okay, the tape I have here was done. It's a second generation tape, but this is all we have. So you work with it. But it's, um, you know, and, and you'd find tapes. Sometimes you'd, you'd go over to the studio and say, I need this tape. And then the guy would just look through a bunch of boxes and go, oh, here it is. <laughs> and it wasn't quite as organized as you would hope it would be. Yeah. As you'd, yeah. You know. Well, I think, I think what you said is probably the big thing is, you know, I mean, theme parks like Disneyland were new and, uh, you know, they're, they're probably coming, as you said, from the studio angle, I don't think people really had a, a vision of what it would become and how significant it would become and how important all that original footage would become to people in the future, you know? No, no, they didn't. It was, uh, and it's still kind of that way to this day. I mean, the Disney theme parks and Universal as well have risen to this certain level, but film was king. You know, the studio was the, was what they were working on was always higher priority than anything for that carnival down in Anaheim. I see. Interesting. Wow. So internally, so, yeah. So it wasn't you know, internally. Uh, it, it was. I mean, it wasn't like there was no bad blood between departments. It's just you know, if push came to shove, the studio film department would win out over the theme park stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and you know, I mean, and I'll be honest. You know, I, well, you know, I wasn't working for the company in the '60s, so. But that's even in the '90s. That's kind of how it was. I mean, I, I have other stories about that, and it's. You know, the, the studio would basically, <laughs> they would take charge sometimes. Right. Yeah. Well, and also because they're putting out a film, right? That's going to generate yeah, yeah. millions and, of dollars and be licensed and everything. So, but well, uh, yeah, in, yeah, in the Hollywood world, film is still king. Yeah. So uh, in the Haunted Mansion, uh, I guess we're just going to, let's just assume everyone's been on the Haunted Mansion. If you haven't been on the Haunted Mansion, you need to go. But, uh, and I do know someone who's not been on the, not been to Disneyland. Uh, but, uh, I'm going to buy her a ticket. Yeah. She did go to, she, (laughs) she went to, um, Disney world a lot because she was on the East coast. So, uh, but Disney, yeah, I know I told her that, but anyway, (laughs) um, I'm going, you know, this is funny. I've got this. I hope this doesn't introduce hum and I never, ever talk tech like this on this show, but I feel like I have a hall pass with you <laughs> on the uh, other yeah, end because yeah. you, you know, you know how it goes, you know? So I, do. <laughs> I have, and I have a really good story. I'm just going to divert while I try and find this power cube. Uh, 
Sure. It was, it was uh, the one I, I got this gig when I, I used to work at SeaWorld and I did, uh, I didn't do show audio, but I did the lighting and eventually became the manager of the audio production studio there. Uh, and they do, you know, they do everything in the park from voiceovers to show music. And, and so they've got a small studio and they, they record stuff and do that. But, uh, one of those guys referred me to the junior theater here in San Diego and they said, Oh yeah, I can't do this. Uh, do you want to go do the audio for a show? Uh, they're going to do a rehearsal tonight. Can you go? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go. So I show up at this theater and they say, oh, no, it's not the, there's no house system. It's upstairs in this closet. So I, go, I climb like up this, not, not a normal staircase, you know, like a, this is like yeah. an old, like circular staircase. And I get to the top of this like third or fourth floor and inside a locked steel cabinet are a couple like powered speakers and a mixer and stuff. And so I lug all this stuff out and, you know, I have to figure out where they put this stuff and how they run the wires and, and all that sort of thing. And, uh, they said, Oh, it's just a, it's just, don't worry. It's just a rehearsal tonight. Okay. The show's tomorrow. I'm like, great. So as it turns out, it's like Christmas on the Prado in Balbo park, which is this huge, like 15,000 person event. And their rehearsal is open to the public. So the entire house fills up full of people. <laughs> Which yeah. <laughs> to me, as the audio person, is no different than a real show. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it is a real show. <laughs> it is a show, and you need audio, and you don't right. know what's supposed to happen. So uh, they were missing some sort of cable or something like that. And what happened was I, I sent someone to Radio Shack for some solder, and I ended up making like a cable. Smoke is like coming up. I mean, the house is full, and I'm essentially making this final connection to get this thing, get this show to go. And and uh, you you know the stress level that can happen from when you're in that situation. But the show went on, and it happened. So um, yeah, and that's why I don't. I've never really worked live. I like studio work <laughs> because it's just there's pressure, but a lot less. So um, at the Haunted Mansion, when you, uh, when you go into the Haunted Mansion, uh, the whole thing starts out in the foyer. And I don't know if there's any sound in there. there there's probably sound in there, but you go into the stretching room. And uh, that's sort of when you first hear the, the ghost host of the whole thing. Uh, and, and who is that? Because is that Paul Fries or is that someone else? No, that's Paul Fries. He did uh, all, that, all that voice work was him. Oh, and then and, there's a bunch of outtakes yeah. too. There's a bunch of yeah, yeah. I mean, because anything you do, there's always going to be multiple takes. I mean, generally you're not going to get it on the first take ever. And somebody like Paul Fries, who's really good, he'll still do it different ways. And so, yeah, there's multiple outtakes of that. Um, yeah, and I was just going to mention when you first walk into the foyer area, there's a an organ playing, kind of the haunted mansion theme. Right, right. That's and that's so that's it's a very it's a very you know if there's a lot of people you might not be able to hear it but it's the first thing you hear is just that organ sound and at least at Haunted Mansion. Right, right. Um, and it does differ between the different parks. Is that right? It, it does. Yeah, it does. I can't I can't speak to like Florida. I mean, I've been on it, but I didn't work on it. I can tell you, like in France, there's a um, outside there's a gazebo, and in that gazebo there's a uh, music box track playing with some kind of like. It was the idea was a ghostly party. So you hear voices, but they're very distant and just kind of non-existent ghost voices. Okay. Okay. I and have, that, I that have been on out, that ride. Yeah. And that starts <laughs> outside in the queue line. And so by the time you get inside, it's, it's, a, it's the, it's the same basic idea of music, but um, they have that gazebo outside. And 
they may have put that gazebo sound into Haunted Mansion out here during one of the upgrades because I think I know I've heard. I think I've heard it. Oh, that it's been added in California. Is what you're yeah, saying. yeah, yeah. It's been added, but I, I believe it's been added. I but I know it wasn't there originally. <laughs> I, I know the the sound in the Haunted Mansion in at Disneyland, which is celebrating the fiftieth this uh, the Saturday, August 9th, um, has the soundtrack is a lot thicker in certain places, especially in the attic scene. Uh, I think there's a lot, a lot of new stuff going on. Um, and then of course, all the classic, you know, sounds as you go down into the graveyard. Uh, is there, uh, I, I know that you're, you said you were familiar with, um, the technology behind, behind the ride that I would, I would imagine that, um, there's probably, I mean, I guess things break over the years and they might find a new way to do it. But, um, I think, you know, that a lot of it is probably just old tech, you know, the simple stuff like the, the skeleton pushing open the coffin, uh, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I can tell you that one of the cool things for me about Haunted Mansion was just the fact that the illusions were so effective, yet they were so simple. Like the ballroom with the, you know, the, the, the ghosts reflecting off the glass, um, you know, the, the, the busts in the hall, the entrance, to the load hallway where they're, they're always looking at you because they're, concave vex you know they're right they're just just and these are these are effects that have been around i think since like the early 1900s but they're just they're simple they're low tech and they're super effective yeah yeah you know the one the one part of the haunted mansion uh at disneyland that has changed a lot over the years i i've actually um sort of paid attention to it is madame leota in the seance room uh she she was over the years, just as someone going on the ride and paying attention, um, there was a point in time, probably in the 90s, when there was a projection uh, lens sort of on the railing in front of the ball that was projecting onto the ball. And then at some point, it changed to an internal projection of some sort inside the, the head of the thing. Uh, and then, and then at one point they started to move the table around and now it's actually, the ball is flying on like a three wire system where it sort of floats over the table and the videos in there in the head. And, uh, there, I, d- I had done a little bit of research on it. And at one point Disney did, uh, file a patent for a video projection through some sort of fiber optic to basically it was that effect. But that was that was when they they moved away from a uh, projection coming, you know, into the ball from the outside to an internal type projection with some sort of like super wide lens. Right. Yeah. And I was I was at WDI at the time that that was first done because I specifically remember being in the video edit bay. I wasn't working on it, but I was just watching and they had the uh, projection, you know, the original footage of Madame Leota because it was all shot on 35 millimeter film. So they had the original negative in the video bay and they were projecting it through the head and they were stretching the image to make it fit on the head just right. So, you know, cause they had the head and they had the image. And so they were uh, basically projecting it through the head and making it fit. And I'm going to go on personal opinion here. And this is just my opinion, but I think I always thought the 16 millimeter film loop looked better than the video. Oh, okay. You mean when it was pro- being projected on when it was being actual projected, film? It, yeah, because it was actual. It was a 16 millimeter film loop on a little projector that would just run. You know, it was the length of the the show loop, which is about. I think the show loop in Haunted Mansion is about a minute, like a minute and one second. Um, so you know, every minute it gets re-triggered to play the show again, and so this film loop was about a minute long, 
and it was 16 millimeter and it was projected literally through, you know, through a projector lens onto that head. And I don't know. I always just thought it was a better looking thing. Cause you know, you get a little bit of film shake Okay. and yeah. you know, it's just like, it's, you know, as the film gets used, it gets a little grainier and a little more like, I don't know, rusty looking, I guess is a, if that's right. the right word. Right. It just has a different look to it. And I always like that film look more than the video look. I honestly don't like the video look of today. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to be Mr. Negative, but personal opinion, I always thought the 16 millimeter footage looked better to oh, me. Interesting. Yeah. And that, that's just my opinion. You know, I mean, everybody yeah, has a, yeah. everybody has a view. That's just what I, that's how I see it. Yeah. But yeah, I, but I do remember working on the, um, or at least watching the video stuff being, um, you know, worked on to make it look, look good, um, on that head. You know, one thing that I just saw just recently, it was, um, probably about two weeks ago on YouTube, there's a video someone took when the, the ride shut down and they mm -hmm. were allowed to walk out and they were in the seance room when that happened. So when the lights came on, uh, and this is something you probably know, but for us people who just go on the ride and, and don't have the opportunity, uh, just on, as the, as the Omni motion cars facing Madame Leota behind you, well, above you are the different floating uh, instruments that go off. But when the ride is stopped with the lights off, right behind that wall, that back wall, that's right behind the, the motion car that you're in or the Omni viewer car, uh, you can look over the wall and there's like storage, like stuff stacked up like parts and it's basically a shop and some storage that is, right under the seance room have you had the opportunity to walk around down there um yes i have yeah it's and like and that and like pirates of the caribbean it's amazing how when the lights turn on <laughs> how unmagical it is yeah yeah it's it's you know it's, it's a giant warehouse and you know there's walls put up and with the with the with the lighting and some of the set dressing it looks amazing but when the work lights come on yeah you're right you just You'll see a box over here, a wall that stops there, um, a door like an like just a maintenance door that goes, you know, into a shop with tools and boxes and storage stuff. So it's it's very unhaunted mansion like. Right. Yeah. Well, and another thing um, I don't think a lot of people realize is that uh, there's an entire lower level under the ride. Is that right? Where the it, basically under under the floor is a whole nother level with the ride system and and some uh, some of the special effects. Is that right? Well, I, I don't I can't speak to that because I don't know. I've never been down there. I know that they have to maintain those vehicles, and I you know I know I'm I'm now I know on like Space Mountain when the cars come into the maintenance shop, it's kind of like in a in a uh, oil change facility you know when the cars stop on the track there's a there's a trough underneath where you can stand down there and work on the cars from underneath oh right right and i gotta think that the haunted mansion has the same thing although i i can tell you i've never i mean i may have seen it but i was never down there working on it for any length of time yeah, um, the things i yeah, yeah no the things i worked on mostly were either in the um eer the electronic equipment room <laughs> or on the actually you know actually out in the show space I see. And, and what it, for, for people interested in sort of like the back behind the scenes of the Haunted Mansion ride systems and audio, initially, um, all that technology in the Haunted Mansion and Pirates, was that taken from some uh, other projects that Disney did, uh, World's Fair type stuff, or was that the earlier stuff? 
Well, you know, the whole animatronic thing, a lot of it came from the Carousel of Progress um, for the 64 World's Fair. And I and I think, and I, you know, there somebody may know better than I, but I think the first animatronics were the Tiki Room for, I think, in about 1963 at Disneyland, the birds. Um, so a lot of the Haunted Mansion stuff was, it was known tech at the time, but it was... It was designed, like, I think it was kind of designed for Carousel of Progress, because Carousel had a lot of, you know, like, the Tiki Room were birds, and Small World were dolls, but animation in um, Carousel of Progress were, you know, like Mr. Lincoln, they were human-looking things, so. Right, I, right. I, I, I just think that the Haunted Mansion stuff was kind of derived from Carousel of Progress. Okay. And I'm again. I'm not the expert. I could be. I could be wrong on that. I just know that Carousel Progress came before Haunted Mansion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But well, they and, used and a lot of the same tech, like the animation tech, which was a very cool thing. Right. Yeah. And that was, you know, it's because uh, you mentioned that it took a while, and uh, or that it was, it came along later. Um, the house was built as part of a bigger vision of sort of refurbishing or enhancing that area of the park. And uh, what uh, we heard at Midsummer Scream was that the it was quite a big project that had to actually move the train track to accommodate the buildings and things like that. So if you look at the train track shape, it's slightly bowed out where the Haunted Mansion and Pirates are, where they put in you know the New Orleans Square and and all those attractions and. And the haunted house kind of kind of took a back seat for a real long time. The idea of the haunted house before it was called the haunted mansion. So um, right. I think it was somewhere along eight years is uh, when they completed the house to when it finally opened. I believe, uh, give or take, probably a year or two in either direction. So yeah, I, that that kind of stuff you'd have to. I mean, I don't know that. I just know that as a kid, I remember seeing the house there for a long time before it actually opened. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I don't, I don't have any, um, I don't have any inside knowledge of exact timeframes. But I do know, like moving the railroad tracks, and that kind of stuff. I mean, that happens common. Like when when they built Splash Mountain, and I'm talking Splash Mountain in Florida, because that's that was my project. But same thing, they had to just basically rebuild like a bridge for the railroad track, and they, you know, it was it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's what they were saying that it was it was a big at the time, and with Disneyland being the first park. Uh, it was, they said it was probably the biggest thing, biggest construction project to happen in the park after opening. So, um, yeah, because if you look at the early pictures of the park, it was, uh, you know, it was pretty rough around the edges. I mean, there was, there were some rides and shows, but not a lot of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, so Haunted Mansion, yeah, was a big thing and because, you know, when they built Disneyland, they didn't know what they didn't know. So they didn't know how big to build the, they built the berm around the outside of the park. And then Haunted Mansion was right up against that berm. So that's where they have to, you know, take the elevator, the stretch room down and go underneath that berm and the railroad tracks to get out to the uh, actual show building. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but, you know, uh, and the Haunted Mansion, it's funny because that is, uh, it's, there's, there's a lot of differences between the different parks, but Disneyland sort of has that, uh, classic spooky look which is exactly what walt disney wanted he wanted that to feel a little bit isolated right there you know that it's the house you know sort of off by itself with the weeping yeah. willow, willow trees and everything like that um is there <clears throat> as as uh as the haunted mansion has gone on over the years i mean really not a lot has changed i mean it's it's really it's the same ride track it's the same presentation of elements as you go through um, really 
I don't think that we really saw any changes happen until I want to say the bride was introduced up in the attic. And I think that that was, um, really came about by Disney fans. Um, there was a, there was a cool magazine that Disney published. Um, I believe it was Disney news, but, uh, anyway, you subscribe to it and it was sort of all the behind the scenes of all the rides and what they're doing. And, you know, it was for, you know, the techie geeky people and the nerdy people who just love how, you know, how things work. Yeah. And so they would go into that, that I think that eventually that only lasted about 12 years before they stopped publishing it. But those were the sort of things that, uh, sort of the catalyst for them to make some changes is, you know, the fan base really, you know, people started wanting to know what's the story behind the haunted mansion. And I know, right. that, I know yeah. that the first time I went on the, you know, we all went as small children on haunted mansion. I'm sure most of us, uh, where you're not paying attention to the story, but by the time you're a teenager and in your twenties, you know, um, you are. And so a lot of people started to wonder, like, what is this about? Why is there, why are we going in an attic? Why are we going to the graveyard? You know, what are these different elements? You know, who, what was the thought behind all this? And after some sort of like fan questioning and internal Disney people talking about it and the Disney news magazine, uh, I think it's sort of start. That's where, you know, this, uh, the, the fan base sort of started to influence like, okay, Disney internal corporate says, Hey, there's a group of our, you know, customers who want to know about this stuff, you know? And that's, right. I think that started yeah. the dialogue. And a lot of times, a lot of these concepts that they put in later years were there originally. They just never built them. They, you know, there's, you know, when you do concept drawings and initial blue sky meetings, there's a lot of things that are talked about that are just never actually built or implemented. But they're still part of a storyline. They just don't get built. So later on in the years, you think, well, we can go back and revisit this attraction, put some cool new things in, and still not, you know, kind of like <laughs> violate the original story. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, because the things we're putting in were actually part of the original story, but they were just never there to begin with. Yeah, and and, uh, <clears throat> and I should have done more research <laughs> before this show, <laughs> but uh, to my recollection, and there's probably 400 people right now who know exactly what I'm supposed to say, um, listening, but uh, to my recollection, there's a bride and a groom, and uh, you see the groom's head disappear. Uh, those, are, those are new elements that they've really been able to tell the story differently now that they have uh, the technology to to build a picture frame that looks like a real picture frame, but is really a video projection of some sort or, or, you know, projected in a way that it looks like canvas and oil paint, but they can actually change it or make things move. And so that's really allowed them, I think just in the last probably five years, five, six years to be able to, to tell that story that they just couldn't pull off you know, in the sixties. Well, yeah, yeah. Cause you know, like even in the last five years, just the, the, the quality level of CGI work has increased to the point where you can, you know, things just look real, even though they're not, um, which obviously in the sixties you couldn't, you didn't have that, but that's still kind of, for me, what's kind of cool about the sixties stuff is like the, um, you know, the concave busts in the load zone you know, that, that look like they're always watching you. You know, that's just, there's no tech there. It's just, it's a visual illusion. Yeah, yeah, and even simple. like you know, and and just the ghosts and you know the den in the ballroom scene, just you know that the uh, Pepper's ghost effect off the glass, 
uh, you know, just projection on glass, but it looks, <laughs> it's amazing looking. Even to this day, it's like amazing looking. Yeah, yeah. So well, I, you, yeah. you know, and some of the, I think that, you know, I, like I have, I have small children, eight and nine and 15. And, uh, you know, their faces are in these devices that are built to capture their attention and they have short attention spans. And I think what I'm seeing all over the park, not just at the Haunted Mansion, but Matterhorn, Space Mountain, you know, uh, Big Thunder, every single one of those attractions now has a real high tech overlay that gives it a lot more pop, you know, um, a lot more excitement. I think it takes it to a new level. And I know for, for guys our age, you know, we think vintage Disneyland when Michael Jackson was dancing there <laughs> doing the special <laughs> for the 20th anniversary and Kurt Russell was roaming around. I mean, that's our, that's our, uh, childhood, but you know, for Disney staying relevant today to my 15 year old, uh, you know, they've, they've really, uh, up the ante on, you know, a lot of these attractions and then, and also to keep it, you know, and it's, it's always a balance too, you know, I mean, this is a classic ride, you know, you, you don't want to mess it up. Yeah. You know, and there's, so. there's always that, there's always that debate of, you know, keeping, do you keep it original or do you change it? Because you're right, you know, tastes change, audiences change, everybody, I believe in this, I know myself, everybody has their Disneyland. Like when for them, it was the most, the best place to be. You know, and I can tell you as a kid, my best years were 1967 to 1974. Yeah. For some reason, just you know, that new Tomorrowland. And when I would go there as a kid with my family, it was just the a most amazing place to be. Um, you know, you know, kids today go and they don't they don't know that Disneyland. They know the Disneyland that they see today, and they're like, wow, this for them, you know, 50, 50, 40, 50 years from now, they're gonna look back and go, Remember when we went to Galaxy's Edge, how amazing that was? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's their Disneyland, you know, and Galaxy's Edge is not, you know, I don't hate it. It's just not my Disneyland. Right. Yeah, I understand. Mine is the 67 to 74 era. And, uh, you know, everybody's got it. You know, my grandparents went there in the late 50s. And, you know, they were just, they, they my grandparents loved the Tiki Room. And, you know, but their, their Disneyland was 1957. Yeah. Well, speaking Which is of, not my Disney. Hey, you know what? And but that is the one attraction that is still 1957. <laughs> the Tiki yeah, Room. I, the Tiki Room is the Tiki Room, and and there's no digital overlays in that room. I don't think I just saw it, and it did, I don't recall anything standing out. But yeah, that, that's yeah. that's the if anything, the birds don't the mechanical sounds of the birds are softer now than than they were in the 80s and 70s. Yeah, they may have upgraded some of the actual hydraulics on the birds. I know that they shortened the show, so it is it's you know, I think originally it was like twenty two minutes or something. It was a long show. Now it's like eight, I guess. I don't know. I don't know for sure. I know it's a lot shorter now than it used to be. The question is, is the small world gonna be shortened? Or is that gonna still gonna stay forty five minutes long? <laughs> No, no. Small, world, small world is untouchable. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> don't, don't even think about changing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, w I was in the, one of the first times I was in Florida, it was a quiet night in the park and rainy and humid outside. And I went on, I was like the end of the night, <clears throat> I was super tired, ready to go home. And I went on small world and with like two other people. So it was me and this, some couple in the back of the boat and we took off and we went through that. And I swear that that Florida version was like an hour and 50 minutes. It felt like. And then when we got to the station, the ride operator 
was talking with another ride operator and had his back to the boats and we just rolled right through the station and had to go for another ride. <laughs> and I saw the look on the people's faces in the boat with me. We were mortified. We're like, no yeah. way are we going to have to go <laughs> well, through that know, one more time. I, you know, I've had that happen. That happened on Haunted Mansion, actually, a couple of times. Um, you know, when you work for Imagineering, you're, you know, you work for the company, but you don't wear a costume. So a lot of times when you're out at the park, you're either, you know, you'll wear an ID or a name tag, but sometimes you, you know, it's not always visible. And so on Haunted right. Mansion, a lot of times when you were listening for something, you'd ride through and then rather than getting off, you just stay on the vehicle as it goes back through. It, it literally goes through a storage room and, and a break area. You know, there's couches, a TV on the wall. There's just things to break area for employees. Yeah. And as you, as you go through there and they're always in there and they're never expecting to see anybody on the ride. <laughs> And so when you go through there, they're just, you know, it's kind of a look of confusion because they're like, well, is he supposed to be there? Is he a guest? Is he an employee? And because you're not wearing like a Disney costume, they don't know. They really don't know who you, <laughs> who are, you are, why you're there. Yeah. Why you're there. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just, uh, you know, you, they normally don't say anything because I just, you know, they figure if you're there, you're there for a reason. Right. Although yeah. I can tell you this, this isn't Haunted Mansion related, but. I've been stopped several times by custodians backstage wanting to know where my ID was and why I wasn't in costume. So it's funny. So, so the custodians double up as security. <laughs> well, the custodians, I can, well, the, the custodians no, know, at Epcot I, do. Yes. Oh, okay. I, I know they're not official. I, I had the opportunity to go at Disneyland into uh, the security head control area once, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, on the haunted mansion, you know, there's people talk about when the ride first opened, they had some people in costumes and I think a knight in shining armor. Um, and I've seen, I've seen people in there over the years, workers who are sort of off in the dark watching. Um, but one of the cool things we did, I did an interview, uh, with Richard Carradine. I was trying to get him to be on the show, but I'm sure he's just super busy right now. Um, and, we talked about, he wrote a book, Haunted Disneyland. You mentioned the, the Carousel of Progress. That's one of the haunted locations uh, where, right. where uh, uh, an employee was killed and got crushed between the moving walls. Um, yeah, I, me- I mean, I remember reading about that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, in the Haunted Mansion, uh, people say that, uh, you know, there are things or people have seen things running around in there. But uh, one of the more, more creepy than the animatronics and everything that's there on purpose is that uh, apparently people go into the haunted mansion with ashes of their relatives and try and dump them in the ride? Have you heard that? I, you know, I've heard it probably just like you have. I've, I've heard. I know that people do take ashes into the park and dump them wherever they, <laughs> wherever they can, um, and I'm sure they've done it in haunted mansion as well. But you know, those rides, what you don't see at night is they go through there and they don't. I mean, they don't clean every single thing every single night, but there's enough maintenance going on in those rides that. If somebody dumped a, and they probably wouldn't dump a pile, but if they dumped a pile of ashes, that would be, that would be vacuumed up if somebody would find it. I mean, if you sprinkle some here or there, that's not going to be found, but you know, it, that, that it just that, becomes that dust, day. right? If you can, if you're creative enough to make it look like it's supposed to be there as like dust, then you're okay. Yeah. Um, right. so, you know, someone told me, and this is, could be just rumor, but, um, I, when speaking with Richard that, uh, they actually have, a um, a procedure in place if they catch someone doing that, <clears throat> excuse me, with, uh, you know, with a special vacuum with HEPA filter and stuff to sort of like 
pick that up, you know, pick up the biological, you know, uh, biohazard that's just occurred on the mansion when someone does that. Um, you know, that I, I don't know. I don't have any personal knowledge of that. Of I mean, I'm sure they have stuff in place like that. You know, that's the thing now with all the tech, like you were mentioning earlier about cameras and stuff. Back when the park opened, they didn't have cameras because it was just, you know, they, they, the tech didn't exist for them. But now, you know, cameras can be just the size of a, you know, whatever, the, like a pinhead, but just really tiny. Oh, yeah. And I don't. I don't know. I don't know for sure, but I'm I'm reasonably sure they've got cameras everywhere in there now. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, and, and I'll you know, it's for liability reasons. Somebody's going to jump off the car and get hurt, and then say they're going to sue Disney, and Disney's going to say, "Well, here, look, <laughs> here's what you did." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think I mean I could. Yeah, you know, I can I can tell you. I shouldn't say this, but from personal experience, in the early seventies, I did get off the vehicle a couple times on those slow nights when nothing was going on in there. Oh, really? I mean, I was, a, I was a guest. I wasn't, wasn't working for the company. I was, you know, I yeah. was 12 years old, but I was able to uh, get out of the vehicle and do a little running around, not running, just, you know, walk next to the car in the graveyard a little bit. Yeah. Probably something that I shouldn't have done, but I didn't get hurt and nobody oh, yeah. ever said anything. So yeah, I that think was my, there's a certain group of people who have tried to slip behind the scenes for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I've never know, been you, successful, but I did try once when the I saw Splat, Splash Mountain was uh, evacuating. Well, uh, de load, uh, you know, offloading while people were on the ride, and uh, I used that opportunity to try and go behind the fence, but but I didn't. I was not successful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, here's a here's a handy tip if you want to go behind the scenes. <laughs> I don't know if we want to give that handy tip. But. <laughs> Well, I'm not just, telling you how to do it. I'm just oh. saying, you know, yeah, no. Okay, so, yeah, I was going to say that generally if you go behind the scenes, there's people everywhere, and they're not really, like, security people, but there's just maintenance people, there's write-ops, there's, uh, you know, food people, there's security, there's all sorts of stuff. So you're not going to get very far. <laughs> yeah, unless you look like you know where you're going. I mean, I, well, I that's start, what I was going to say. That yeah, was I started, my secret. Was that, right, I started, yeah. my, I started my theme park career at SeaWorld, and... And yeah, you know, and not, I mean, SeaWorld was smaller than the the Disney staff, but yeah, behind that fence, you know, you see the same people every day. You sort of know, even though you don't know everybody, you know a lot of faces, you know, and someone who doesn't belong stands out like a sore thumb because they're sort of yeah, wondering it, where to go. They don't know, go right, go left, what's in that building, you know, people with a purpose right. that go behind there, walk exactly where they need to be going. So, yeah, that, that was my, uh, my, my tip is like, if you look like you know what you're doing, you may not get stopped, but you have to look like you know what you're doing and you have to know where you're going. And you know, the thing with Disney, well, with any theme park, a lot of those doors are open up into areas of mechanical stuff that can kill you. So <laughs> yeah, either by mechanics or electricity or, or something. So, uh, you know, I mean, if you walk backstage, you, if you look like you know where you're going, you'll get, you'll get to a certain point, but at some point they'll find you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And security these days, the back areas are covered too. So, and they, well, and yeah, they do and, know yeah. everyone that I, that's, I worked, I was part of putting in, you know, hundreds of cameras at SeaWorld and, you know, it's kind of in, in that, by doing that, you know, part of the job was to make sure they're working and look good and focused and all that. And in doing that, I had the opportunity, you know, you, you're looking at the camera and you're seeing people do their job. Uh, and, you know, it's a little bit weird when you run into them in the cafeteria. They don't know that you just saw them for five minutes, you know, right, selling yeah. popcorn or whatever they're doing. But it's it's a little bit... It's not awkward, but it's just a strange position as someone, 
in the surveillance department that you have that uh that kind of back knowledge on people that they don't they don't know that you know but yeah um, and you know you have to like at disneyland i and i you know i have no inside knowledge on this at all but you just have you know if you put two and two together after 9 11 and with terrorism and all that kind of stuff that's going on in our world today you know the mass shootings and things you got to imagine disney with all their money has security backstage covered every which way oh yeah i, I mean i mean, I mean I, just you know, I don't, just going yeah. to comic-con i mean you know you scan your badge in you scan your badge out i mean it very well could be that way on every entrance to to back a house you know i mean that your badge is rfid and when you go through there's a camera that pops your name up and your id number and you know i bet you you know that i would not be surprised if that were the case and the second you walk back there you know it's going to alert someone so but anyway well, yeah exactly but, but uh, back, <laughs> yeah. back back to the haunted mansion back so back to the fun stuff <laughs> back to the 50th anniversary 50 <laughs> years of uh haunting i mean the thing originally was supposed to open uh, and there was that internal debate is this going to be scary or is this going to be lighthearted and there was a, right. there was a nice quote over the weekend at midsummer uh uh, of Walt Disney, and it's, this is not a direct quote, but essentially, it, in so many words, it said, "They tell me I'm not supposed to scare people, but people like to be scared." And that was a, a Walt Disney quote. Uh, so, um, which is true, people like to be scared, but the Haunted Mansion isn't about that. What I what I like about the yeah. Haunted Mansion is it's sort of like this template for the the perfect haunted house. You know, it's not it's not terrifying. It's not horror. But it's just that feel, you know, that old feel and, you know, some of those classic elements of the seance from the, you know, the, yeah. the, the days of the seance in the 1860s when that was the main form of entertainment. And that's part of, you know, the Spooks and Spirits tour that I do in, uh, in San Diego. And then also, um, you know, so, sort of the, the foundation for a lot of these shows and, and talking about ghosts and paranormal and stuff like that is just that whole foundation of you know, uh, late mid, mid 1800s entertainment, you know, uh, you didn't have TVs, you didn't have radio, you didn't, you know, I mean, people were looking for something to do and talking to the dead and wondering if there's another side was, was what was in, you know? Yeah. 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 And you know, that, that just reminded me of something, um, you know, speaking of just, it's, it's, you know, Haunted Mansion is not like a, a blood and guts gory gore fest. That's not what it's about. Um, but uh, you know, we were talking earlier about Madame Leota, but you know, the singing busts, uh, throw Ravenscroft and those guys that did the singing busts, uh-huh. what was interesting about them. And this was always interesting to me is that they filmed these guys. They were, when they sang, when they filmed them, they were, all those singers were laying on their back and they had their head strapped down so they couldn't move their head. Oh, really? And Oh, so, yeah, they, they were, so that they could be projected more accurately onto the... Well, yeah, well, that was that was a technical reason, too. But it, it, what it did was, because they were laying down, their facial features are just a little weird. Like, they're not, because they're not, they're not, you know, their faces are going backwards rather than down to the ground. Oh, I see what you're saying. And it's, it's one of those things that it just, when you watch it, like, because I've seen the actual original footage that, you know, when they filmed it. Uh-huh. And... When you watch it, you're watching it and you're going, oh, it's somebody singing it. But then it's like, there's something weird about this. There's just something off and I can't figure it out. Yeah. And I had the, I had the fortune, the guy that was with, we were watching it. They were doing a telecinia transfer to video um, back in the, in the edit bay. But the guy I was with, he was telling me, he goes, I was there when we filmed this. And he told me, you know, what they did. And it was amazing because it was just a simple little thing. But they had the actors lay on their back. 
on a piece of wood and then they strapped their head down. So when they sang, they couldn't move their head around, which like you said, was a technical thing, but it also added some weird creepiness to the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you say that, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's never, you know, that's kind of one of the magical things about Disney attractions is there's, there's little things like that, that the public, you just don't, you don't know why, but there's something different about it. And it's funny, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just about, you know, I was going to ask you this and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to put him on the spot because we didn't talk much at all before this. I was going to say, tell tell us one thing that most people don't know about the haunted mansion and that's, I think that's a really good one. So, the, you know, that was, that was exactly what I would tell you because that's something I never really thought about. But when you see the original footage, you can see the wood behind them. You, you know, they do a slate. You can see, you can tell that they're laying on the ground, uh, but it's just, it just creates such a, such an odd effect where you, when you look at it again, you look at it and you think it looks normal, but it doesn't look quite right. And that's what makes it very cool for the Haunted Mansion. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, you know, my kids, I don't, my, they might know who Tony the Tiger is, but that was my reference when you talk about the, the singing bus, right. the grim grinning ghost um, portion of the ride uh, yeah. is, is that, uh, that classic voice, uh, which was Tony the Tiger. And then also in that, I mean, obviously that's sort of a quartet or whatever you would, not a quartet, one short, right? <laughs> I, I, I forget, is it four? Is it five? I, I, you know, I don't remember exactly how many busts there were. I think there were, I thought there were five, but somebody else will know better than me. I don't remember the exact number. We're so not the people to do like the perfect, like historical reference. <laughs> no, I, I, can just tell you, I can tell you yeah. behind the scene tech things that, you know, but I can't, I can't tell you that. That historical thing. I know, but you know what? It's fun to talk about anyway. And, and there's uh, lots of people. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I don't know if you're hip to this, but uh, Disney tonight Actually, um, I know this podcast and I know people listen to these podcasts delayed and you might be listening to this and it's probably the 52nd anniversary or something. But, uh, but tonight, uh, Disney is having an overnight in the haunted mansion. Uh, it started at 1130 this morning. They were doing some sort of like merchandise thing happening at the Disney hotel. And then people are going to line up in about two and a half hours uh, in front of the park at the at the entrance gate to Disneyland, and then they're going to be escorted to the haunted mansion where there's a special thing going on. I don't know if there's a party going on. I, th- I th- I'm pretty positive there's food and drink included because uh, the ticket price is pretty uh, pretty steep. But um, but you also yeah. get to go on the ride from one o'clock in the morning until four, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, I mean that's something that you don't yeah, get to do. That, but for three hundred dollars, for three hundred dollars, you could do that. It is cool because, you know, because, you know, they're going to have, like you said, food set up and special areas and things. If they, if, if guests were to go on the ride at one o'clock in the morning on a normal night, it's, it loses all of its magic. <laughs> you know you what know? I did? It's funny because, uh, we pretty much slayed it when we, when we went to the park for my son's birthday in mid July, uh, we did way more than we thought we were going to be able to do in mid July. Uh, it was not as crowded as all the indexes predict it will be in July. 
Uh, right. And and mainly because most annual pass holders are blocked out unless you have right. unless you're one of those special cool people that have the uh, you know almost all year except for Christmas for twelve hundred dollars or the whole year for fifteen hundred dollars. But uh, those yeah. people can be there. But most Southern California passes and all those lower ones can't can't be there in July. So it wasn't that bad. But one of the last rides we did was the Haunted Mansion, and it was you know Disneyland used to stay open. I remember as a teenager that we would stay, we were in the park till like two in the morning. I think it closed at one officially, but if you were in line for a ride, you could finish the ride off. And by the time you walked out and got to your car, it was like two in the morning. But now this, this year it closes at uh, midnight every night. And then uh, main street is open for another hour for gift shop sales and things like that. But uh, so it must've been close to mid- It was, it was around midnight because we were there the day before Disneyland's birthday. So we were there July 16th. And I remember I wanted to stay past midnight and go do a, you know, go on the haunted mansion on the birthday right. of Disneyland. So, so we got yeah, to that, do that. that. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I remember, you know, like you're saying things would be open until 2am. That was always a, like not just haunted mansion, but anything you worked on in the park, like from an imagineering standpoint, would always happen when the park was closed. So <laughs> you never wanted to do stuff in the summer because you had between two a.m. and six a.m. to do your work. Right. Yeah. Whereas so, in, the, in the in the winter, when it closes at six or seven p.m., and I don't know if it does it anymore, but when I was there, it did. So you could go down there at seven o'clock at night and do your work. So it was always preferable to do your work in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, so, so nowadays, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously we don't know exactly what goes on, but, um, you were, so you were expected, uh, just to work the late, a late night, right? Like if you got a, uh, what sort of things, I mean, th- that would be a good, that good insight that I think people would find interesting. Uh, and I'm sure it applies to haunted mansion, everything in the park, but what sorts of things would you have to go do on an established ride like that? What would, what would prompt the audio department to have to be in the haunted mansion at three in the morning working on something? Um, generally there were, we had two, we had two specific jobs. One of them, which this would happen more in the daytime was called SQS, which was show quality standards. And part of Imagineering's, um, I guess, you know, mission is to make sure that the park stays as, as it was designed as best you can. So uh, in that case, we would go down in the daytime and just ride the ride as a guest and make notes of, can I hear that speaker? Can I hear this track? That one's distorted, you know? That one's out of phase. Just, you know, you'd make technical notes. Um, but something at three in the morning would generally be uh, you're swapping out speakers, you're uh, swapping out amplifiers, um, or in the case of, uh, like, for me, I, I was working, they were, they were putting in a new show control system because the original animation for that ride was the, uh, I don't know what the name of it is, but they were kind of like phone booth sized. <laughs> if anybody remembers what a phone booth is. They were foam booth size, um, and they were like saw blades that would rotate, and they were platters. And each platter would control a certain part of animation on a figure. So one platter would be the arm, one platter would be the head, one platter might be the eyes blinking. And these things would just, you know, they would all turn in sync, and it was literally like a stylus on a record. There would be different Wait, styluses. Wait, for, for everyone under 30, what is a record? Just explain that real quick. <laughs> what is a record? A final record. It's a, you know, there's yeah, a it's, platter with a needle, an arm. There's a platter with a needle, but what it is, it's like if you think of a, think of a skill saw, like a saw blade, 
And if you take a saw blade that has the, you know, the edges, the ragged edges on the outside that cut through the wood. Right. Take that saw blade out of the saw and then you turn it flat and play it like so it's parallel to the ground. Right, right. And what you do is instead of having the same jagged edge all the way around, you that, that jagged edge shape gets ground down and changed. So it's it's kind of a it's not a round saw blade anymore. It's just kind of a wavy thing. I know it's hard to describe, but it's like a saw blade turned on its side. And <laughs> this is the record reference. As that thing spins, there's a stylus like a uh, an arm armature out at the end that kind of tracks and follows that saw blade as it turns around and that's what i mean like it's like the groove of a record you know how the needle in a record as the groove moves that needle picks up the uh, the groove and turns it into an analog waveform yeah i think if so, uh, if people imagine if you've ever seen a clay pot uh being being uh made on a platter you've got a platter that spins in the piece of clay instead of the clay pot going up if you imagine that the clay was sort of spinning in a circle on top of the platter and then you were to shape the outside edge that determines what you're saying is there's an arm that follows the edge so when it goes in half an inch the arm on the character moves a half an inch or a foot or whatever its references or ratio and so yeah, that's how that's how they achieve the motion originally and you can see that sort of stuff if you go on uh youtube and search up disney animatronics vintage you're going to see these big giant platter systems, you know, which are really cool. Um, I always wondered how they programmed, you know, how do you, you know, I guess you just manually cut those, those discs or whatever. But, um, you were saying that haunted mansion would have opened with that system. Is that right? Yeah. It, well, it, it did open with that system because I was, I was part of the team that did the change out from that system. And one of the coolest things to me was that those, those, um, platter cabinets, were you know by the time i got down there we had um the, the some of the uh, audio hardware maintenance guys had already swapped out the um the show control tech <clears throat> and it was a you know it was a software controller system and it was a one rack space unit that replaced all these cabinets and uh you know i mean <laughs> you know the company alcor mcbride yeah yeah yeah, I remember. When, you know, I remember when that happened because I think that was written up in the Disney News magazine, and I went and um, somehow searched them out, some brochures or something. But essentially, that was the an well semi quasi analog animation system being turned 100 percent digital. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. You know, it was an Alcor McBride V16 show controller, and that replaced the animation cabinets. So. Um, but what the cool thing on the animation cabinets was that there was a door on the front. And when you open that door, every time a maintenance person did some work on the cabinet, there's a, like a little sticker and they would write, not really, they'd just kind of make a quick note of what they did okay. and their initials and the date. So you could see like, okay, on, you know, on July 1st, you know, Bob did this and it was just a quick reference. But what was neat was when you opened the cabinet door, there were stickers from like the day I was there, which this would have been about 1994, 95. And the stickers went all the way back to 1967. Wow, that's cool. So, so like you could see the maintenance stickers on this door dating back, you know, <laughs> twenty, yeah, like 25 years. And it was a very cool thing um, to see. So, but yeah, so I know that those platter animation cabinets were in use on day one, all, and they were there all the way to 94, um, huh? Yeah, about 94. Wow, right, 93, 94, that era. I don't remember the exact year, but early 90s for yeah. sure. I would imagine and that so, before yeah. they before they make a move like that and change from a technology that 
is <clears throat> pretty foolproof. I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's moving parts, but um, I would imagine that it takes quite a bit to, to make that leap into a new technology. And since the Alcorn McBride stuff, I mean, are you aware if that's been replaced by something newer? As far as show control goes, I don't know. Um, I know audio-wise, you know, I, I know a lot of the audios now run off a different system, but I don't know about animation um, exactly. I don't know. I don't know what they use there. Right, right. Yeah, I know, uh, like we were talking about offline, um, that I had the opportunity to see probably, I wanted to say it was between 15 and 20 racks of equipment, uh, all audio amplifiers and digital audio playback devices and, and things like that, all labeled Haunted Mansion. And that was uh, at a subcontractor yeah. that does that sort of work. And, and they were... I want to say that was like six or seven years ago. So uh, quite, yeah, quite well, some time. One of the one of the you know one of the neat things that happened at the time, and this is just kind of shows you, I mean, how Disney has changed, was that I was down there and we were again working on the you know they were doing the show control change out, so we had to make sure that the audio was in sync, which is why I was there. Um, but the animation cabinets were all unplugged and they were just sitting in the equipment room, just sitting there. <laughs> and one of the maintenance guys said, what are you guys going to do with this stuff? He goes, ah, oh, we'll probably just throw it away. He goes, do you want, he goes, do you want one of these things? Oh my gosh. And I was like, yeah, of course I do. But they were giant. They were huge. They weighed a lot and you couldn't just move it. You needed like a, a forklift to pick them up. And you know, oh, yeah. it wasn't something I could just put in the back of my, even though I had a pickup truck, it wasn't something I could put in the back easily. Yeah. But, but man, that would have been an amazing thing to get. <laughs> to have. No, there there really yeah. should be a Disney tech museum of all the stuff they've done. But I, I kind of had a similar experience at SeaWorld. Uh, what they would do, uh, there was a show, and you may remember this. It was called City Streets. I believe it was City Streets. And it was um, it was basically uh, an amphitheater surrounded by a cityscape. And you would hear different sounds like New York City, you know, cars honking and some lady yelling out of a window and a cat, you know, screeching off in the corner. And the right. way that they did that, and this was, this would have been in the late eighties to 92 ish, right around in there. Um, they actually had like an Otari, like 16 track reel to reel player that, yeah. that, that sat up in the top and played all those sounds because, you know, that was the way that they did it. And yeah. over at what happened was um, there, the way they do it is when they remove a show, um, the speakers and the amps and all that sort of stuff go into a storage, you know, container on site uh, under technical services. And again, this was in the 90s. They might just throw the stuff away now. But um, the, what they would do, the management at that time was, uh, you know, let it sit for a couple years in case someone needed it or, you know, we need something, go see if we've got one. Uh, and then as the stuff built up, they would do a, what they called a boneyard sale. And that was where us, the employees, got to go and just like silent bid on stuff. And yeah, so that'd I remember be, that'd be fun. There was a, at one point there was a tax scorpion audio board, like a, I don't know, 36 or 40 channel or something. Uh, but at that time, that's when that Otari, uh, reel to reel, two inch reel to reel, uh, was, was available for sale and somebody, somebody else got it. 
and I had I had gotten my hands on Jupiter Eight uh, synthesizer, analog synthesizer, and I, or no, I I it's the other way around. So I got the I got the two inch I got the two inch Otari audio playback machine. And at that time, I was had a little home studio, and I got excited that I got this thing. I'm like, cool! I got this awesome, you know, piece of studio gear. It's legitimate. You know, this is in big studios in in LA, and I was excited about it. And then I went to find out about buying the tape for it, and it was like two hundred and sixty dollars in 1994. And I'm like, that's like two paychecks back then in the yeah, yeah. in the tech department. And I'm like okay, this thing is going to do nothing but take up space in my house now. And so I ended up trading it for a Jupiter 8 analog synthesizer, which was an awesome trade because that thing, I ended up selling that thing for like a couple thousand bucks. And I've looked in the last five, I look every once in a while and I'm sad I sold it because it's like worth $10,000 now, which is closer well, to what it was when it first hit the market. You know, it, It's funny you say that because I'm, I'm, I'm in my home studio here and I have a Roland Super Jupiter MKS-80 synthesizer module that I bought in 1984. Oh, wow. And it's the original one. It's got the programmer with it. And when you look at it online now, it's worth more today than it was when I bought it. Yeah, I know. And Isn't it crazy? It's, it's, it's original and it's sitting here. It's been in my home studio for, well, 30-some years. And it's, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing. To, I mean, just to look at it and know that this was, you know, it's still, a, it's still an amazing sounding box. Yeah. And I know we're super off topic, but it's it's pretty crazy. People don't realize, you know, those that equipment, you know, that was used to record the Haunted Mansion stuff and and the music that everyone knows and loves. I mean, I know that Jupiter Eight was somewhere around fifteen thousand dollars in nineteen eighty when it came out, and uh, it's it's in lots of different tracks, the Rio by Duran Duran, and you know, a lot of those groups yeah. in that era, but. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to like the audio tech on Hana Mansion. Uh, you know, it was all just like the like the background music was just two track stereo tape on a loop, not a loop, but it was a it would it would reverse like it would be it would they would be one track would be forward and the other track would be backwards. Oh, so like the, what the, the machine like like the organ music in the foyer when you walk in. It would be on a like a long playing. I think it was seven and a half ips. You know, just a, a like an hour long tape reel. Okay. And then when and when it gets to the end of that tape reel, it, it would stop and then start playing backwards and sort of rewind at, at at play speed. Wow, that's cool. So it actually it would just basically like bounce back and forth. It would go one way and then back the other way and then. The, Correct. That's, yeah. Versus I, being a loop, like a like a uh, radio. I used to be uh, involved with college radio, and you had like the cart decks, and also at SeaWorld for the shows, where it runs once and stops, and it's ready to go again. So it's not well, that's, that. But, well, well, it was that for some of the sounds, not the uh, not like the looping or the long play stuff. Oh, okay. But the uh, uh, you know, like the the knocking after you get out, just before you get to the seance scene, you go, you know, you see the endless hallway. Yes. And you're going down that hallway with the doors, and you hear all the knocking sounds. Um, you know, a lot of those were triggered sounds, and they came off that cart tape system. I see. So yeah, it was the same same technology, and then you know, we finally uh, we started digitizing that stuff in the early '90s. Um, and that's but up until that point, it was still analog tape from the '60s. How often would that have to be replaced? Um, you know, it depends on 
Uh, it just depends on how often it was played. Like, well, something like that that just goes uh, when the ride's on for fourteen hours a day. You know. Yeah. Well, I can't. You know, I can't tell you Haunted Mansion exactly, but I can tell you that at Epcot, you know, we had the show tapes. We'd get. We would send them like they had bin loop. They had twenty four track two inch bin loop tapes that we would they would splice end to end. So they were they would be continuously running, and they would let those tapes run into you. You could hold. You know how to analog tape. You know when you what it looks like. Yeah, when you hold it up to the light, you could see through it. That's how long they would play them. Oh, that most of the the brown material, and and I'm yeah, sure yeah. like there's everyone listening well, has no idea what the heck we're talking about. Well, when the magnetic when that when, the, when you can see through the tape, all the frequencies contained in the magnetic part of the tape they're gone too. So the tape was going to start sounding you know, like just like going through. You know, it just right. started getting like like I was just now just muffled. Yeah. So yeah. So they would re, you know they would replace it. Pretty much, they had a schedule, but the schedule was, I don't know. I don't know what Haunted Mansion's actual schedule was, but it would be, you know, every like every 60 days or something. Right, right. Now, you were saying that uh, one thing I thought was really interesting, kind of insider info about the Haunted Mansion, you said that it's a one minute and one second show. So what you mean by that is that as that motion car that you're sitting in goes down the track... For one minute and one second, you are within a zone of a certain scene. Is that right? And then that scene will start to play over, and you're gone from the scene, so you'd never see it start over. So the next well, scene you, you might, go you, into, <clears throat> the next scene you go into, is in its one minute loop as well, or one minute one. Well, second yeah, loop. every every scene that loops is the same length. So it'll be, let's say, and I, you know, it's one minute. It's right around one minute one second. And, and, you know, to be technical, it's frames. So it's, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. One minute, one second and 12 frames out of a, out of a 30 frame second. So, um, but you would, you would be in a scene longer than a minute, but the loop would be a minute. So you might hear the end of the loop, but if the editing was done correctly, which it was, you, unless you knew where the loop began and started and stopped, you wouldn't know that you just heard it loop. Right. And I can tell you like in Haunted Mansion, you know, they like, you hear the music dun 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 dun. Yes. And then it's like there's a quarter note triplet. Dun 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 dun. Boom dun 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 dun. That's the loop point right there. Oh, okay. Okay. So and and you can, you know, in the in the early days it was analog, so you could if you were in the scene when it loops, you wouldn't really hear a pop or anything, but you could tell where the loop was. But with digital now and with editing, you can make that loop point seamless. Yeah, yeah, I see. And you know, like with with the, with tech now, and I, you know, I'll, okay, I'll spill a little beans. You know, the tech now is mostly um, QSC, uh, QSC local area network system, QSIS core system. Okay. You know, and I, you may be familiar with that, Steve. I don't know, but it's it's all networked um, audio hardware, and it's all networked Cat five with software. Right. And that's how it all plays, and so. Everything comes off these one box, and it's it's all loops. You know, you can within the computer, you know, within your um your design software, you can loop things, you can route things, and it all comes off. Um, you know, you take your laptop and just connect to it, make everything happen. So, do you think that uh, in in <clears throat> and this might be different in Florida from Disneyland, but do you think that all these ride the ride system within Haunted Mansion at this point in time could could actually not even be in the building except for the fact that the amplifiers and the speakers but the sources could be 
in some central location. Is that right? Well, in Florida, they are in a central location. Um, I don't know about now, but when I did Splash Mountain in Florida, that was the first attraction not to be located in um, what was called DAX, which I don't know what the official name was. <laughs> I called it Digital Audio Central, okay. DAC. <clears throat> and it was literally a room in the, you know, Magic Kingdom in Florida has those big tunnels. Right, and underneath. Underneath. And it was literally a room that had every tape machine, every amplifier, well, not amplifier. Well, it did have amplifiers. And every sound source card for every attraction in the park in this one room. Wow. And it was like walking into mission control at NASA. It was a pretty amazing looking room. But you could walk down the, you know, you walk down the, um, the different aisleways, and there's a bunch of amplifiers that will say Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, Tiki Room, uh, you know, Bear Band, whatever, whatever the show was. Wow, it's you know that and that park is so spread out. How did they technically get you know putting I'm, a lot of people wouldn't know this, but there are issues with long runs of wire between a speaker and an amplifier or a sound source. How did they do that? I mean, that place is huge. I mean, how would you have well, you know yeah, the like, amplifiers for Pirates of the Caribbean like a quarter mile away from the building, you know? Well, they just you know you they'd have little like satellite equipment rooms with, with line amplifiers. Oh, really? Like yeah, so like like at Epcot, some of the audio runs were almost two miles. And so there'd be like, you know, the main equipment room, like at Magic Kingdom in Florida, the main equipment room has everything in it, and then the everything gets fanned out through conduit, you know. But there's satellite rooms. Just you walk down the tunnel and there would be a it'll say like DAC with a number on it. And you go in that room and there's a rack of line amplifiers and it just boosts the signal, you know, <laughs> to keep it going. Wow. <clears throat> till it gets to the actual uh, attraction. You know, this is, and this is, uh, we're, we're totally geeking out here, uh, but, <laughs> I know, I know. but I do want to say that uh, along those same lines uh, at SeaWorld, the way that they accomplished long distance audio was that they actually had similar to a cable company size cable that would go do a giant loop around the property. And then they would modulate like an FM radio station onto the cable and so the cable would essentially go and there would just be satellite amplifier rooms <clears throat> basically tuned to a radio station plugged into right. their own private, you know, cable system essentially. And, uh, you know, 96.1 or whatever, 96.3 would be the, a certain audio track. And so yeah, that's just, how they yeah, accomplished you, you, it. Yeah. That's kind of a neat thing. I never, I never really knew that, but that's, you know, that's cool. Yeah, it's a because yeah. I mean obviously, you know, cable companies get, you know, your your before satellite and all that and internet, <clears throat> they had to <clears throat> broadcast, you know, uh television picture all the way, you know, for 15 20 miles, you know, out into neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was yeah, that's um that's kind of neat to know that. You're right. It's kind of a geeky thing, but yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so so at Disney it was it was line amplifiers, you know, at strategic points that would boost the signal back up. Right. Right. So, um, <clears throat> on the haunted mansion, now you did phantom manor. Um, and let's get into that a little bit, uh, about the differences between phantom manor, uh, in, in Paris and Disneyland's haunted mansion. What are, what are the differences for people who haven't seen that, but love the haunted mansion at Disneyland? Well, the biggest difference is the music. It's a different. It's a different soundtrack. Um, we we basically took the. And I say we the um, you know the original Buddy Baker um, 
Grim Grinning Ghosts soundtrack. And there was a guy, an Imagineering named Christian Hope, I believe his name was. And he took the uh, he took the original soundtrack from Disneyland and kind of did a synth version that was sort of more of a more of a waltz kind of a ghostly waltz type sound with in a minor key. And then that track was given to John Debney, who's a big time film composer, and he, he used to be a staff composer at the Disney Studios, you know, thirty years ago. And anyway, so that track was given to Debney and said, "Okay, John, here's you know here's Grim Grinning Ghosts. This is the kind of style we want. You know, this Christian Hope." arrangement and do something with it so then john wrote the like the phantom manor suite which in my mind is like about 13 or 14 minutes of just amazing you know music and so that's the biggest difference i mean there's a little bit of a story difference but i don't know the whole phantom manor story because it's changed over the years well so i had been there i think i was there in like 2000 2000 ish right in there 2001 somewhere in that time frame and at mm-hmm. that time, um, there the biggest thing that stood out to me was that first of all, it was not the sort of plantation style house that the haunted mansion is, and then secondly, it had this whole western element to it, sort well, of like yeah, the Wild yeah. West in California was in Paris inside the the Phantom Manor. Right. Well, because it it existed in Frontierland, and you know, in the park. Right. Um, there was no New Orleans Square in 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 Paris, so it was it it was in the Frontierland area. So it was sort of sort of reimagined as a uh, you know old west or a, you know that eighteen hundred ish old west feel. I see. And you had to do audio for that. Oh yeah, I did. All, I did. Um, I recorded Vincent Price. Vincent Price was the original voice for that. Um, he was the re- we recorded him in English, and he also did it in French, but. I guess his French wasn't acceptable to everybody, so he, his French was never used. Um, and then there was another guy, which I didn't, I didn't. After the fact, after it opened, another guy was recorded um, in French as the ghost host. Um, so we recorded Vincent for the um, as the as the main guy, the Phantom. And you know, when they did this redo about last year, I think they did a ref- they refurbished the whole attraction. And they put Vincent Price back in, which was very cool. So yeah, I sort um, of heard something about that. I I think when I went to it, it was Vincent Price. Yeah. So he, I mean, his, his laughter has always been in there, but okay. I think a lot of his, a lot of his, like you know, the stretching room dialogue, and you know, is this room actually stretching? All those classic Paul Freeze lines are, you know, Vincent Price, you know, read all that stuff, and I think a lot of that's being used now. I was going to um, say, where where is uh, that stuff that was recorded by you? would have been Correct. archived better. Is that right? Like that's um, probably yes. easier to find that Vincent Price tape. Um, you'd be surprised, but yes, it, it was easy. <laughs> it was, yes, I, I, I actually got a few phone calls saying, Hey, we have these tapes with your name on it. What do you remember about them? Oh, really? I mean, someone internal well, was trying to figure out what it was. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the thing is, is when you're working on an attraction, you're doing a lot of different versions and a lot of different takes and you have different levels of tape. Like you'll have a recording tape, like a session tape. And then after the session tape, you'll do some edits. So then you have a tape that has just the edited tracks on it. Uh huh. And then you, then you have a tape where after you do the editing, you'll do some EQ or some, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll edit even further and then you'll do alternate takes. So you'll have multiple tapes of the same show. And if you worked on the show originally, you kind of remember where the you know where all the skeletons are, right? But if you didn't, you're just looking at a stack of ten or twelve tapes, and they all say something different. And you know, when I labeled the tapes, I labeled them as clearly as I could think about it. But 
I wrote them in language that I understood. So, right. You know, the guys looking at it now, 25 years later, are trying to think, what did he mean when he said, you know, alt take a, you know, <laughs> yeah. EQ master. Yeah. What does that mean? How, how was it working with Vincent Price? That, that was, you were working out of uh, Glendale at that Glendale, time? Glendale, yeah. So all yeah. the stuff for all the parks worldwide were recorded at Glendale, at least back then. Yeah, most of them still are. Um, they have some pretty good studio facilities at, at Imagineering Air in Glendale. Um, unless the actors, like, if the actor's just not available to get out to L.A. or it's not practical, we would fly to where they were to do it. Um, when I did Spaceship Earth with Jeremy Irons, he was filming a, a movie in New York. So we flew to New York City and recorded him at a studio in New York. Um, yeah, I was, was going to say, I, I think within even recording like sound music, I think that sometimes that happens, right? The, the artist well, yeah, will, end up, will end up in a difference. Oh, we need you to do this. You're in New York. Go to studio, whatever, and they're going to do your take. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm going to, you know slightly off topic, but not hot to mansion, but like with spaceship earth, Jeremy irons was recorded. The voice was recorded in New York. Um, the music was recorded in Newport beach. The choir was recorded in North Hollywood at a studio. And then all the overdubs for the ride were recorded in Glendale and studio a at WDI. So multiple studios. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, but like when the case of haunted mansion, uh, most of that stuff was all recorded at the Disney studio lot because that's just how they did it back then. Over on Buena Vista uh -huh. Drive in, in Burbank. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That location. And right. If you knew where it was done, that the you know, the sound stages are still there. <laughs> so all the you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the same microphones are still there somewhere too. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, so like but like for Phantom, it was the uh, London Philharmonic Orchestra over and it was recorded at actually at Abbey Road. Really? So wow. So so the Phantom Manor soundtrack, the the bulk of the orchestral stuff was done in the same studio that the Beatles worked in. Right. Right. So there's that trivia, but a lot of the overdubs, which are you know, after you record the music, like especially in the graveyard scene, there's in Phantom Manor, especially there's there, there's like skeletons playing like bones, like a marimba. Yeah. And a lot of wacky little things going on. Um, all those overdubs were recorded at John Debney's studio in Glendale. Oh, okay. So okay. So like we you know we took the tape over to his studio and and you know he was the composer and he you know he could play stuff and he would play things and just we would just record it. So. The overdubs were done in Glendale. The main bulk of the music was done in London at Abbey Road. And that's kind of how that was done. But, you know, like Madame Leota was recorded somewhere in France. I didn't record her, but she was over there in France. Um, Good Surprise was recorded in Glendale at Imagineering. Okay. So just, you know, generally it was, it was out of Glendale, but not always. Yeah. That's cool. So um, the tech in Phantom Manor at that point was the newest haunted mansion, so to speak. Uh, of any Disney park, what was what was that process like when uh, you know when you came to the table? Uh, I guess it doesn't really matter what the technology on playback is. It was more you're probably more tied in with the story producers. Is that right? Um, yeah, on Phantom Manor especially, I worked with uh, I think it was Jeff Burke. He was the show producer. I know it was Jeff. I think his last name was Burke. Um, he was the you know, the head show producer and. He was a great guy because he, you know, he had this whole concept in his head of what it, of what he wanted the show to be. So he would come into the studio and we would like we recorded Vincent Price and you know it was a script. Um, guy named Craig Fleming wrote the script and he uh, Vincent Price came in and read it and then and then um, John Debney would had some John actually hadn't written the music yet. Christian Hope had just kind of done a temp track of of the music and so. You know, Jeff would come in and say, "Okay, take Vincent Price's voice, 
take that music, put it together, and let's just see what we have. <laughs> and you know, it wasn't it wasn't a show order. There was no scenes or anything. It was just it was just dialogue and just to kind of get a feel for the show. Right. And it was one, this was one of those shows that I, I say edited itself because I put I took Vincent Price's dialogue, took some selected takes, laid them out, put the music underneath it, and played them. And it was just it was eerie. <laughs> it was perfect. <laughs> it worked. So well, that, it was, not, there was a noticeable in the studio. I played it. I was there. I think Craig was there. Jeff was there, and we played it. And we just all looked at each other and went, "Wow, that was like this was meant to be." Yeah, yeah. So that now that was for people who are um, you know Disney uh, Disney fans of the Haunted Mansion. Uh, there were little differences between Haunted Mansion in California, and then when they had the opportunity to do the one in Florida. Uh, you know, they, they also had a different ride building to work with, but it's relatively similar. Phantom Manor was really the first like departure from Haunted Mansion because technically it's not the Haunted Mansion. No, it isn't, but it still kind of follows the same, the same show path. You know, you have the low, you have the, uh, the foyer entrance, you do the elevator, the stretching room, the hallway, the load area, excuse me. Um, and then you do, you know, you see the endless hallway, the, the knocking doors, Madame Leota, the seance scene. Then you go into the grand ballroom and then it out into the graveyard. And up to that point, they're pretty much the same. But in Phantom Manor, you go into the the Phantom Canyon, which is sort of like Which is the worst I, I place guess, the worst place in the world. You never want to be in Phantom Canyon, right? Exactly. Because it's sort of a Disney can't publicize this, but it's kind of like the gates of hell. Okay. <laughs> it's just a you know, it's it's like the underworld. Kind of yeah, like this uh, basement I'm sitting in right now. This is yeah, the underworld. Yeah, pretty much. You know, if you yeah, could see, if you could see this, this is uh, it's this it's like limestone brick from 19, 1918. and it's like if I run my hands across it, it, just falls down like sand onto the ground. So I don't know how the audio quality is here, but it's uh, <laughs> it's definitely uh, yeah. it's older. This is older than the haunted mansion, <laughs> but. By, yeah, by, by uh, four, 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So much spookier, but anyway, yeah. you're, so back to the, so, the Phantom Canyon, like the gates of hell, uh, you go into there. That is, uh, after the graveyard or before the graveyard? It's after the graveyard. It's like you, after you travel, after you come out of the attic with the bride, the singing bride up in the attic, you traverse down through the graveyard and the, and in Phantom Manor, you go through the catacombs. So you, in essence, you go down to ground level and then you go below ground level, like you go down underneath the graveyard. Oh, okay. And that's where the canyon is. And so it's a longer uh, show. You know, I don't remember. I don't remember exactly. I think it is a little bit longer ride, but the loop length is about the same because we used, you know, we used we used um, the same loop length as Haunted Mansion. So the show the show still loops about a minute, minute and one second. Okay. Okay. So the loop length is the same, but the actual time you're in the ride is longer. And and that loop length, that was that was determined when they sort of laid do you think that was determined based on the speed of the of the show cart or do you think it was more like how big this scene is? Like every scene is about 25 feet long, is it? How is that done? Do you have any insight into that? Um I can I, I don't know. I can tell you that I've determined several loop lengths, like Splash Mountain in Florida, all those loop lengths in the different scenes. There's three different lengths in that show, and I've determined all those. Um, it was all determined musically. Oh, really? Um, well, well, initially, you know, the show designers would say, okay, we want here's a, here's a story we want to tell when you're in this scene. 
And, you know, and then they would deal, they would say, but there was no time associated with it. It was just that we want to tell this story and it's going to be about a minute because that's kind of traditionally what the loop lengths have always been. So, and I, I wasn't part of those meetings. So, and then the composer, like for Honda Mansion, like Buddy Baker, you know, he wrote Grim Grinning Ghosts and, you know, the, with the lyrics and everything. And it just, it came out to about a minute. <laughs> I see. There was, there was, I don't know about Honda Mansion. I know with Phantom Manor, it was, you know, there was no, uh, John Debney wrote the score and, you know, he knew that it was about a minute loop. So he wrote it kind of in, in that style. And then I put it in the editor and I looped it. And when I got it looped, I said, okay. Here's the loop point. It's exactly like, you know, again, one minute, one second, 12 frames. Wow. And it was a, it was a musical decision. I see. And, and then that loop length becomes, you know, you send that to the show, the animation programmers, the show programming, you know, everybody gets that length as part of the, it becomes part of the documentation for the ride. I see. So it becomes part of the technical, technical, uh, yeah. <clears throat> specification essentially is that loop length is this. So in the future, as it gets uh, replaced or whatever, that's, uh, that's a spec that the next audio guy is going to work off of. Exactly. I mean, you know, it can always be changed, but if you change, if you change loop lengths, you got to change animation lengths. You got to change show lighting. Everything has to change, you know, cause everybody's working off that same loop length. Right. Right. And I, and I mean, I mean, lights are just, you know, I'm not a lighting designer, but some lights are, you know, I, some lights can be triggered to be in sync with the scene or, you know, or, or moving things. So Every everybody is aware of the loop length, and in my experience of the loops I created, it always came from a musical edit. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so it was never like it's got to be exactly. It's you know it's got to be around a minute, but it nobody nobody told me, Greg, it's got to be exactly <laughs> this length. I would I would in essence tell them here's how long it is. Oh, I see. So as the as you in in a ride like Haunted Mansion, Phantom Manor. Um, the car moves at a certain speed and you said everything is synchronized together. Um, is the, are there trigger points? Uh, you talk about loops where it's just a simple, I guess what you're saying is that the zone, so to speak as a scene as a zone is right. that one minute audio track. So you don't have to trigger it. Whereas like some of the more sophisticated newer, newer, well, I say newer, but 1985, like Indiana Jones, you know, rides yeah. like that have, all kinds of audio tracks that trigger in certain places and in different audio tracks sometimes. So the classic rides back to the Phantom Manor, Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, those rides yeah. all sort of just were far more simplistic, right? Um, yeah, they were. It was just basically a one minute, again, a, a roughly one minute loop that just played over and over and you just, you rode through it. And now every scene, Every scene has its own kind of musical area or musical style, but it's still all playing off that same one-minute loop. I see. And, and, and the ride vehicle speed through the scene really had nothing to do with the loop length of the show. Interesting. They were, they were, they were independent. So, and, and the ride speed was, and I, you know, I wasn't part of this team, so I can't, I'm not an expert on it, but it was basically determined, okay, there's two to three people per vehicle. And you know, the Disney number, the magic number, used to be 2,400 people per hour. Oh wow, interesting. So you just you know you you just do the math, okay? You got twenty four hundred people divided by two per car. How many cars? How fast do they have to move to make twenty four hundred people go through there in an hour? Interesting. Wow, that's a good and, Disney you know, fact right there. I like that. Yeah, one. and it wasn't like twenty four hundred on the dot, but that was the general accepted you know number. Yeah, is there any? And that was yeah. 
Yeah. Um, oh. Is there <clears throat> is there any other cool factoids like that that you sort of know about these attractions for the people, those of us who who care about that stuff, who are digging deeper into the rides? Um, let's see. I can. Yeah, the twenty four hundred. It's called THC. Total hourly capacity is kind of a general um, guideline. Okay. And and it now now it may have changed. I don't know, but that was you know that was still kind of the thing. Um, at least into the nineties, that was the thing. Yeah. Um. Well, now with Fast Pass, that probably changes all kinds of things. Yeah. Too. I mean, it, it's it's so it's it's such a different like the operator. You know, and I, I never worked as an operator at the park, so I don't know all the details of that. But as an operating from an operating side, it may be different with Fast Passes and and things like that. Um. I'm just talking from like a you know, a, a kind of a creative show side. Right, right. But, you know, when a ride is designed, because like with Disney history, you know, Walt Disney Imagineering is a separate company from Disneyland. Yes. So Walt Disney Imagineering would propose a ride for Disneyland and say, here's what we want to do. And Disneyland would say, okay, well, our requirement is 2,400 people per hour and our maintenance staff has to be able to do this, this, and this. And you got to be able to clean that. You know, they had like, they had certain operational requirements. Right. Because Imagineering would always come up with these, you know, we would have these crazy ideas that were pretty amazing, but they weren't very practical. So, um, you know, the, in the meetings with the Disneyland operations people, they would just kind of bring us back down to earth. Right. <laughs> Say, yeah, okay. I, I, I kind of heard from other people who worked at Imagineering that a lot of times, you know, the original vision makes it to the park, but then once it starts to get built, somehow someone who's counting the money starts to cut stuff and then management comes yeah. through right before it's supposed to open and says, where's all the cool stuff we're supposed to have. And then everybody runs at the last minute to make it what it was supposed to be. I've heard, well, I've heard that from know, several people. I don't know if that's true yeah. in your experience, but yes, it's exactly true in my experience. Um, <laughs> right it, it, on the know, nail. Yeah. This isn't haunted mansion related, but splash mountain related splash mountain Disneyland. It was exactly that. It was, um, you know, it's basically a water ride in a warehouse and a lot of acoustics were designed in there so you could hear things. Well, acoustics are something that, you know, you can't really see they're, they're in there, they're in the walls, it's surfaces, it's things like that, but nothing was, it's not like a tangible thing generally. So it was a huge part of the budget and it got cut. So when the ride opened, a lot of the bigwigs, Michael Eisner included, rode through it, couldn't understand a word of anything. And this happened also at um, at MGM Studio Park in Florida. Same thing. A lot of the acoustics were cut out, so a lot of the attractions were, you know. And you know, I'm I'm not going to repeat all the language, but Michael Eisner had some colorful language about why things sounded so bad, <laughs> or not why, but he, he asked why why things sounded like they do. And you know, the answer is well, acoustics were cut. So. Uh, so what would happen is like you just said, okay, well, let's fix it. And uh, So now, you know, to retrofit acoustics into a ride, it costs twice as much to put it in as it would have if you had done it during construction. Yeah, because you've got to work around all the everything else, right? Yeah, everything's already in. Uh, yeah, so rather than putting in acoustics on a wall tree, but you, now you got lights and you got other stuff and, you, you know, you can, you can do what you can, but it's, <laughs> it's twice as much of the cost and it's half as effective. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, what, how you described it is exactly what happens. A lot wow. of stuff gets, a lot of stuff gets cut out and, um, it's amazing on the drawing board, but as it starts getting close to being built, um, project management steps in and says, okay, we got to get it done by this date. We got to cut that. We got to cut this. 
It's amazing and, a project manager could do that. I was a project manager. <laughs> Usually you just go with, you know, these are the specs. You've got to get this in for a project manager to, uh, you know, cut some element, creative element or some utility element. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Well, I can tell you that those type of those type of arguments were above my pay grade. <laughs> it right. was uh, it was project manager and show producer. Show producer was pretty much the boss of the creative side of a show, but the project manager was the construction boss, and you know the two had to agree on a lot of stuff. And so, uh, you know, I can't say personally that I heard a lot of those conversations, but I heard a few, and you know, they're not always they're not always on friendly terms. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, and it was sort of a contentious environment at times between project management, creative, and, you know, sometimes the parks, you know, Disneyland itself, operations. Yeah. You got yeah. Three, three people that all want something different. <laughs> and, and you know, just, amazing. And, about, and as that, and, and as much as that happens in the background, it's amazing that, you know, really cool stuff still ends up happening there and the audiences love it. You know, people. Um, you know, phantasmic, phantasmic 2.0, I mean, spectacular stuff. So, yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah. Like, well, like, and like, like phantasmic is a, um, it's a creative entertainment show. So that didn't come out of imagineering, but not that that matters, but, um, it's a different, a different arm of the park that creates that stuff like the live shows. Right. Right. I see. But it's still, you know, it's still kind of the same process. And I, I and I, you know, I know, I personally know, you know, the guy that did the sound for Phantasmic, and he has the same stories as me. Yeah, just di just different people, but the same stories. Same things. That's probably corporate entertainment world, I guess. So, all yeah. right. Well, Greg, thanks for uh, joining me on this Haunted Mansion fiftieth. Uh, like I said, we're we talked a lot about other stuff, but uh, hey, if you're into Disney stuff and you like the tech side of stuff, this is a good opportunity to hear from someone who's uh who was there for for these types of rides uh haunted mansion uh obviously not the original haunted mansion but uh you know to some extent uh you know just a, a little peek behind the curtain on how things you know have worked for those sort of rides so uh, it was really cool thanks for thanks for joining me and taking the time i've been in my basement far longer than i th than i ever have before <laughs> so i'm feeling like getting out of here i'm going to snap a picture and i'm going to send it to you so you can see <laughs> this pit that i'm in right here with uh with uh, my uh, my DBX uh, 160, 166SL uh, compressor that's hanging off a piece of foam over here. Uh, it was right. all thrown together last minute. But anyway, uh, we got a show out. Uh, happy birthday, Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. I wish I could be there uh, tonight, but I'm not going to be there. So uh, I'm going to go on Periscope app if you guys have that. Hopefully someone who's there is going to be live streaming it so we can get a little taste of what's going on. Uh, they have some really cool merchandise. I don't know, Greg, you probably haven't seen this, but uh, they've got really cool Funko Pop uh, or Funk Pop, whatever, however you pronounce those things. Uh, they've got Madame Leota they released and uh, they just announced for tonight that they're releasing uh, the Grim Grinning Ghosts, uh, the bus. The, I think it's three of them. So yeah, they, they, that was, um, yeah, I, I had, a, I had a grim grinning coast story, but it's, you know, we can, that's not, it's not a big deal, but it was, that's a neat, I just, I love that tune. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what, if it's cool, let's, let's, let's throw it out there. Oh, oh, just, well, the guy who wrote it, Buddy Baker, the composer who wrote it, uh -huh. um, when he, when he died or passed away back in the early two thousands, I went to his funeral service at USC cause he was, uh, the head of the department of film composing at USC. Okay. Well, as part of the thing at the memorial service is they played, they played his original score for Grim Grinning Ghosts, you know, like his original demo version with a live choir and, wow. you know, 
piano and and the drummer was louis belson because louis belson used to take music lessons from buddy baker composing lessons okay so so i heard grim grinning ghosts with louis belson on drums and it was just it was an amazing moment because you know i'd never heard the original demo version of it and it was live and it was just an incredible moment that's really in cool in Mon imagine history in and i don't history. think it was recorded yeah yeah no that's yeah, a good one it's just good it was i thought it was pretty amazing just to hear that that's a cool factoid for sure on that one <laughs> all right um hey what's your yeah. favorite horror movie before we go oh my favorite horror movie yeah oh man i worked on nightmare on elm street the tv series oh you did <laughs> but that's not, yeah but that's not it i think um oh i you know i'm gonna be classic old school um night of the living dead the original black and white okay okay what'd you think of the the more modern one where it took place in the shopping well, mall oh like yeah like you know i don't know there's something about the original black and white that was because it was so low budget and kind of creepy just the way it looked yeah the the shopping mall one i think that might have been dawn of the dead or yeah. something but it just was it wasn't bad it just you know it starts because it starts to me getting like gory because you can do it Right. Like, yeah, you've got the budget, so let's make it gory and you know that way. Which I don't mind gore films as much, but just the original Night of the Living Dead because it was in black and white, and then the whole storyline with the guy getting you know killed at the end, and <laughs> yeah, just and you know, and I'll be honest, and it's my other favorite. I don't. It's not even a horror film. It's sci-fi. It's um the original Alien. Okay. Okay. Because that's a, that's a more modern one, but that to me was like a scary film because you, at the time you didn't know what it was and. You know what? There were cool. There were some cool people out there. I remember in the '80s, uh, going up to someone's house, trick or treating, like probably like '86 or '87, and -hmm. the door opened. It was full of fog and a bright light, and there was a gigantic alien from the movie that came out. So you know, Halloween and horror. I mean, you know, it's sci-fi, but you know, it's scary sci-fi. So um, yeah, I just always thought that was scary because you didn't for first half of the film, you really you didn't know what you were you didn't know anything about what you were looking for. And to me, that's always the scariest thing. Yeah, yeah. When you don't know what you're you're up against. See, I uh, I think there's like three types of horror movies. There, there's that style. And then there's the the style where it's real, where it could be something that happens like hostile, which is a lot of people find those scary because, you know, that really could happen. Uh, and then yeah. you kind of have that classic horror movie style, which uh, my favorite movie, and I might have mentioned this at some point along the line, I think this is episode 29, somewhere along the line, I may have said this, but it's uh, Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. And a lot of people don't yeah. know this, but uh, the horror fans and Halloween fans here in California uh, have heard of Universal Studios Halloween Horror Nights that they do. And um, Rob Zombie, this was sort of like this. Right now, the current producer, John Murdy and, and Chris and those guys out there, uh, they're kind of like second generation uh, to the haunt uh, that Universal does. They did it for a really short period of time. Uh, in i want to say 89 90 91 and then they stopped and then there was a break for a few years and then that's when they tapped into john and all those guys and they've been doing it now for 14 years but um one of the one of the original (coughs) haunted mazes at universal in those early years uh was by rob zombie they invited him out and they said hey we want Uh you to do a maze and we're going to put your music to it (coughs) and he did that and he loved it so much. I went through the maze. I mean, a little, a little 
retrospect on it, you know, I, I remember a trailer from a trailer park and clotheslines with shit stain underwear <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that you had to go through, which is yeah. his style. But uh, he said that he was inspired after doing that haunted house to make a movie. And that movie was House of a Thousand Corpses. Huh. And um, when he thinks of that movie and he talks about it in interviews, he says that uh, all he sees is mistakes in that movie. So he doesn't he doesn't enjoy watching it because <clears throat> it was his first movie. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, followed by Devil's Rejects, uh, which was the second one to that with all yeah. those great actors. Um, I had the opportunity to be in on uh, an awards banquet that they do up there for for Horror Nights. And the mm-hmm. entire cast and crew of House of a Thousand Corpses was there. Uh, Rob Zombie was there. His wife, Sherry Moon, I think is her name. <clears throat> and uh, Sid Haig and um, oh, Bill Mosley and all those guys that were part of that. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to play something real quick on our way out. Um, this is, I had uh, Sid, who plays the clown in that movie, do a little voiceover for this show. So I'm going to play it. It's 15 seconds long, and then we'll drop into some music and, and then we'll be out of here. Mm-hmm. So, okay. uh, let's have a listen. Spirits and more radio. Listen to it or I'll come over there and put my boot all up in your ass. <laughs> all right. Well, this is it. Show 29. Happy birthday, Haunted Mansion. Thanks, Greg, for being part of the show. It was sure. fun. And uh, we'll have to get lunch next time I'm up in L.A. <laughs> I'm actually going to be up there uh, this weekend for... Uh, it's it's ironic. A lot of people don't know this. The 50th anniversary of the Haunted Mansion is also the 50th anniversary of the Charles Manson Tate murder. So <clears throat> a lot of people don't know that that happened on the same day. Wow. And it did. So there's some trivia for you guys. (laughs) All right. right. Okay, we're out of here. We'll do another one of these sooner than later. Now that I've got all this uh, equipment hooked back up, coming to you from Old Town, San Diego. We'll catch you guys next time.